welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we're joined today by Cycling Tips Tech Editor Dave Rome in Sydney. Hi, Dave. Hello. And also with us is Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief, The Hammer, Kaylee Fretz. <laughs> Hi, Kaylee. Hello, James. I, always, I keep forgetting that this is my nickname, but I like it. I'm into it. I approve. <laughs> There's multiple connotations to it, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I just love that our Velo Club members tag me in literally every single Hammer-related post on the internet, on the, across the entire internet. I get tagged, and I and I appreciate that because now I have a full breadth of understanding of all the available hammers before me. Yep, and now we have to get you a custom Silco 3D printed titanium hammer <laughs> with some sort of customized face or saying or something on it we'll fi- we'll figure that out we'll i told out. i told our velo club members that all they have to do is get me a rock and that's all i need because it's it's the same thing i don't need any mm. like hammer with stuff in it to dead blow no just a nicely shaped rock is all you need mm. Mm. good maybe we should shape. start calling you caveman <laughs> <laughs> anyway anyway it is the week of november 15th and just as an fyi we might start posting fresh Nerd Alert podcasts uh, on Mondays instead of later in the week. Uh, so in case you've noticed a change in the schedule, that's why. We'll see if this sticks. Uh, sitting out this week's show, however, is ace mechanic Zach Edwards from the Boulder Gruppetto. Uh, last I heard, he was in the process of recabling a new tri-bike the other day, and he hasn't been seen since. So fingers crossed he makes it out of there in one piece. We'll find out. Uh, we've got a lot of news to cover in today's show, uh, including some interesting new wheels from Chris King, A very unexpected bright spot on the compatibility front from SRAM. Yet another sign of life from the cross-country hardtail market and a company that's bringing us one step closer to finally, finally being able to toss turtle shells at other riders on Zwift. So let's get into it. Uh, Let's start with these new Chris King wheels. Dave, I think you've got the deepest background on this technology that they are using. So tell us what we're looking at here. Yeah, so it's basically using a, a new form of uh, manufacturing in the US. There's a, a new manufacturer that's uh, specializing in thermoplastic uh, pr- produced rims. Uh, I believe we first saw this, uh, James, you may be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but under the Revel bike brand. Yep, I think it was Revel. Yeah, uh, and basically, yeah, it's it's thermoplastic. So we've done a previous episode on on the technology, but the idea is is that uh, it's, it's a much... Uh, it's a much more automated process. So the the thermoplastic and the carbon is kind of all done automatically. So it takes not a lot of time. We're talking seconds to produce a rim as opposed to hours in, in some cases. It's much less uh, energy intensive. Uh, and then the thermoplastic can be melted down and the, the fiber extracted. So it can kind of be recycled um, or at the very least they can uh, chop it up and repurpose it for uh, for other parts. They can basically then forge it into something like a stem or uh, what Revel's done is uh, they've got tie levers that are reusing some of the recycled rims. So there's, uh, yeah, there's, I guess, a more of a, a use case and more of a, a full circle of life for the product as well once uh, once it's had its day which is particularly interesting for chris king since they are a certified mm-hmm. b corporation which i think they i think they might actually still be the only certified b corp in the bike industry is that correct at least that i can tell that's designing components for consumer or recreational use definitely there are a couple others that are like kind of cycling adjacent but yeah as far as a manufacturer goes it seems that they're the only ones so um 
Yeah, so I mean that that kind of you know tells you everything you need to know about the rim. That the fact that a B corporation has s- selected this carbon fiber rim is, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. So, yeah, it's made in Utah, I believe. Yeah, I guess there are also some claims too, as far as the ride quality and durability, right? Yeah, correct. There, so the the big claim is that uh, you know Revel first did this on the mountain bike side, and they're claiming that it's uh, it's better. It has a better tolerance with impact resistance, so it's it's less likely to crack. It's less uh, brittle as a material, uh, and then through that, they also claim that it has a, a slightly better ride, uh, ride quality. That it, I guess, uh, dampens vibration a little bit better as well because it's a less hard material. I guess a little bit softer in some sense. Um, yeah, it it sort of has this ability to to yeah take a hit and then also not. Uh, sting you as you ride over the bumps um but yeah you've just james you've just received a pair for testing so you'll be able to actually tell us whether that's all true well i haven't i don't actually have them on hand yet but they're apparently on the way soon Um, okay so as far as as weights go they're they're fairly average i would say for uh, a wider disc brake compatible uh, carbon gravel wheel claimed weight is about 1468 grams uh, with their own chris king hubs obviously um, pretty reasonable internal width, 23 millimeters, so not super wide. Uh, I guess I would kind of hope for the gravel wheel that it would be closer to 23, but they may have just been what Fusion Fiber has available in terms of the available, in terms of what they have for a mold right now. Um, and then in terms of cost, they are unfortunately not terribly inexpensive. They are about a little over 2,600 US. So a little pricey, a little pricey. Um, but if they hold up as well as they're claimed to, um, and if they ride as well as they're supposed to, then could still be a pretty intriguing proposition. And maybe more importantly, you can get them in fancy colors. Indeed. So yeah, so to give you an idea of that price, like obviously Chris King hubs come at a premium. Uh, Revel themselves sell the wheels with uh, Industry 9 one-to-one hubs, which is Industry 9's entry-level hub. Uh, and that's priced at $1,975. So yeah, you can kind of give a bit of a price comparison there you're paying a, a 600 us dollar premium for those chris king hubs over over a much more entry-level hub so uh yeah but it's, it's not terribly expensive you know there are wheels out there that are literally double so it's yeah. uh yeah yeah keen to see how you go with these i'd call them terribly expensive personally they're pretty two thousand dollars 2600 yeah they're 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 at the upper end for what we have come to expect now for for pretty nice carbon wheels which more often than not are kind of hitting the market at about 1500 ish now but again that's quite a different hub um i think a lot of people would be willing to pay a premium for a nice chris king hub set um thousand dollars is kind of a pretty big premium though um but i don't know we will see how they are. Again, like I said, we have a I have a set inbound, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance to Chris King that I'm going to intentionally run my tires quite low on these. And there mm-hmm. are a lot of rocks here, so I'm crossing my fingers that I don't actually break them. But if they do come back broken, that is why. We'll find out. <laughs> uh, I will I will say that having reviewed some zip wheels recently, the NSW top of the line wheels, um, everything else seems quite well priced. <laughs> <laughs> that may very well be the intent there, Dave, I dare say. Yes. All right. Yes. Moving on. Uh, we have been talking a lot on the show recently about uh, component compatibility in terms of you know, keeping your older stuff running and that sort of thing. Um, 
and I guess we've been talking about that subject kind of more in particular with the lack of compatibility in most cases. So, uh, which makes this upcoming, this, which makes this next piece of news all that much more uplifting. So we got some good news from SRAM on the compatibility front. Dave, what is the scoop here? Yeah, so this is actually something that people were complained about when SRAM first went 12 speed with ETAP. They were, they were complaining that, you know, the ETAP shifters are just buttons and why can't they make the new shifters work with their old derailers? And I guess it's two years after the, those complaints, but SRAM has actually made that happen. So they've announced that they've discontinued uh, producing those 11 speed ETAP shifters. And as a a replacement for that they've basically opened up the firmware to allow you to use new SRAM red or force or the blip box uh with old first generation red etap uh derailers and that includes front and rear derailers um and also uh there's there's two versions of those rear derailers there's the original one and then there's a newer one which has new features like a clutch and larger tooth capacity and yeah this firmware update works with all of it so um, yeah, it's it's cool. It's it's definitely uh, it's it's a cool thing to see the backwards compatibility. So SRAM's not just leaving people in the dark. If they you know if they were to have one of those older eleven speed bikes and they had a crash and they broke a shifter, they actually now have a legitimate option to keep that bike running. And to be clear, pairing the new twelve speed axis shifters with the older ETAP derailers is still in, is still going to result in an 11 speed drivetrain correct not 12 correct you're not going to get an extra click out of it um yeah it's well, it's stuck at what the derailers can there's handle. an infinite number of clicks in those levers there are it's just a matter of whether the derailleur moves an extra cog no it's it's stuck at 11 speed um there's a few other caveats it's uh the rival axis shifters aren't open to this firmware update uh and then also um while the shifters themselves work with the axis app um where you can kind of configure everything uh because those derailers don't you you kind of those derailers just won't come up through the app so you won't be able to configure the derailers to any, with any of the new features uh so yeah there, there's definitely some limitations to it but given that it's a it's something that consumers were requesting a couple of years ago it is actually quite cool to see the CSRAM recognize that there's a need for this and and to keep older product running that and it's so uh reassuring or i guess so encouraging that we keep talking about how particularly with electronic components this sort of cross compatibility should very much be possible and it really has only just been a matter of the manufacturing companies making the choice whether or not to make the, that cross compatibility possible. Um, the big the big company left out at this point on that front obviously is Shimano um, because they have clearly uh, they're, they've quite openly omitted the compatibility between the current or the new 12 speed road stuff with the old 11 speed road stuff, which is a bummer. Uh, I'm, we, we've we've made that very clear, but who knows? I mean, Shimano, I'd say, is certainly more set in its ways and is less likely to be convinced that that their way is not the best way. But at least knowing that their 12-speed levers are physically connectable to the 11-speed stuff, it would be so, so nice if Shimano were to incorporate something like that here. We know it's possible. They already do it with the TT stuff and... It'd be really great to see that on the road as well. It would be. And especially, you know, I think it's it's not 
unreasonable to think that in four or five years time shimano might stop producing 11 speed di2 components or 11 speed at least the shifters and at that point i think it would be uh you know obviously it'd be nice to see them do it before that but it there is still that path that it'd be nice to see uh shimano open up and spend a bit of time and create some firmware and you know whatever it takes maybe a new battery or whatever to make the new components work with the old you know at the moment while they're still producing the 11 speed parts not such a big issue but longer term would be good to see them make this available right agreed agreed well we will see um and i guess also with this sram thing i really well i wonder but i think i know how this is going to go um you have other third-party electronic drivetrains that give you a, even more flexibility in terms of tweaking everything like with the archer stuff you can you can program the exact position of every of every sprocket, um, that sort of thing. It seems unlikely that SRAM is going to add that level of customization to things because they do want to still keep you in the whole SRAM family. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'm still kind of surprised that no one out there has hacked the system to let you have that sort of capability. But maybe that is still possible. But we'll find out. We'll see. But this is still a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, some bike news now. Uh, Orbea just dropped its second-generation Terra gravel bike, uh, Terra Carbon gravel bike, I should point out. Uh, and it looks pretty nice, actually. Uh, I haven't seen it in person yet, so was, this is all just based on uh, company-supplied photos. But uh, in typical fashion for Orbea, I'd say, it's really nothing crazy. Uh, you now have dropped chain stays for more tire clearance, uh, slightly updated geometry, hidden cable routing. Uh, still a normal bar and stem, though. A pretty normal bar and stem, anyway. Uh, it now fits 700 by 45 mil tires, or 650 by 50 uh, Whereas the old bike used to accept uh, what Orbea had described as quote unquote most 700 by 40 mil gravel tires. <laughs> uh, chain stays are now a little bit shorter. They're down to 425 without much in the way of drivetrain restrictions. You can fit a standard road compact double on there, which is kind of neat. Uh, geometry is slightly longer and lower without being at all polarizing. Styling super clean. The pricing is pretty good, um, especially when you consider the availability of the custom paint and component options through that Orbea Mayo program. Um, and as much as the gravel market is starting to get a little weird, uh, I think actually Orbea's conservative approach will serve it pretty well here. Uh, Kaylee, it looks like you had some thoughts on this. I just think it looks really good. That that's it my does. my primary thought. And like, so the fork, the fork has this interesting kind of like juts forward it's a straight leg but it juts forward a little bit right underneath the head tube and i really like it it looks really good it's sort of an unusual it's an unusual shape but it it works it looks kind of like aggressive and fast and that's just a really good looking bike i i, I maybe it's just i've been I, I, uh, the most recent bike that i reviewed was the bianchi arcadex um <laughs> so i just see that's like that's like what i said with the wheels before where after you review a really really expensive set of wheels everything else seems cheap after you review the bianchi everything else looks good oh man for a company that has made some of the most gorgeous bikes in the history of bikes uh, i'm just i'm i'm stunned by that one Uh, but anyway my point being that actually like you said james like kind of traditional looking gravel bikes they I, i love them like just Give me, you know, I don't need a horizontal top two, but give me something kind of close to it. Maybe don't drop the stays that much. Like, I kind of like the look of a stay that attaches to the basically the top tube. This fork thing, which is a little bit unusual, 
it works. It looks really good. I think this is one of the best looking gravel bikes I've seen in a while. And the other thing that I really like about it is the little down tube locker, they call it. Oh, yeah, the storage uh, hatch. The storage hatch, which is borrowed off of, of mountain bikes. They're all over the place on mountain bikes these days. But they're super handy, right? Because you can you can just... I don't know if you guys have mountain bikes with this this particular feature, but you just leave everything in there. You just like your entire flat kit just lives in the frame and you just don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about forgetting something. You don't have to worry about something falling off. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about the the saddlebag unzipping or anything like that. It just it just lives in there. And I I, I think it's fantastic. It also just makes for a very, very tidy appearance. Yeah. So in addition, in addition to the bike itself looking really nice and clean, the fact that everything, all your repair bits are all just hidden inside the down tube just makes it even that much cleaner. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. So again, we haven't ridden this thing yet. Geometry looks good. It just looks good aesthetically. And so I think that's a win for me. As long as that storage hatch doesn't make any noise. That's my main request. Because some you know, of them do. Yeah, that's which, true. Which ones have you experienced? Which ones have you dealt with that make noise at this point? Some of the earlier ones did. I think the both Trek and Specialized are getting them both pretty dialed at this point. But I'd say the first generation did. I have a Stump Jumper Evo mountain bike. And it's a pretty... I have to say, like, I like the... My, my wife has a, has a Trek um, Fuely X that has sort of like the, the lever thing kind of like the Orbea has, it feels much more secure, feels quite locked in versus the one that I have, which is the, the sort of the, I think it's the older version of the Specialized, um, which just kind of like this this rubber tab or plastic tab just kind of flips up and over a, like a set of teeth. And it, it, it doesn't, just doesn't feel, there's still a bit of movement. It doesn't make any noise because I think it's all just sort of rubberized, but it, there is definitely movement in the in the whole top cap of it basically uh it's it yeah doesn't feel great but the orbea like i said has has this this lever uh mm. similar to the the trek design uh so yeah we don't have this bike in right now i have put in a request uh that i think is actually going to happen this bike is not going to ship until uh i think orbea said they're going to start shipping sometime in december and they're really going to be expect they're really going to be expected in stores around uh sometime around the, the beginning of 22. Um, so this one might be a little bit, little ways out, but um, I, I'm crossing my fingers that they are going to let me do a mile version because I think one of the best, uh, I guess one of the biggest draws for me is that you can get that custom paint at no extra charge. And Orbea has some awfully wild paint combinations that you can go with. And I, that, that's unquestionably the way that I go. And I think that'd be a super, super cool way to showcase that thing. But anyway, I'll I'll put in that request. We'll see, we'll see what they say. Worst they can do is say no, right? True. Which which they might. Which they might. Um in other new bike news, we also have a new cross-country two-niner carbon hardtail from Cannondale. Uh so the new scalpel XC two-niner features an unusually slack uh head tube angle. It's between 66 and a half and 67 degrees, depending on the model. Uh, it's got a seat tube that's two degrees steeper than before and five to 10 millimeters more reach per size than before as well. Uh, not surprisingly, it does have dropped seat stays and it's got flex zones in the chain stays to help smooth out the ride. Um, also gets a 10 millimeter bump in travel up front. You now have a 110 millimeter travel lefty Ocho single-sided suspension fork. 
Uh, claimed weight is for the frame is quite light. It's 895 grams for medium. And I think it's really cool that we are continuing to see this sort of resurgence in cross-country hardtails um, because they're really fun. Uh, they are certainly quite a bit more capable than they ever used to be. Uh, and they're really light. Uh, Kaylee, I know you would be pretty stoked to go ripping around on this thing, wouldn't you? I would definitely be very stoked. In fact, uh, the PR guy texted me the other day and was like, would you like to test this? And I was like, I need to ask James. <laughs> well, because here's the, here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing from my perspective as the person who is responsible for getting all this stuff actually on the site. I'm a busy Massimo man. Massimo at Cannondale. <laughs> Kaylee would have no issues whatsoever riding <laughs> yes. this bike. Yes, Kaylee's very good at riding actu- the bikes. However, actually getting the pictures and writing the words and doing that sort of thing is a little more challenging for him these days. It's challenging. So we're going to have to talk about that one yeah, internally we'll here. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we, we, we talked about this a little bit uh, internally already, but I think doing a cross-country field test would be sweet. And if we did do one, a bike like this would be a pretty good fit for it. I'm, I'm So interestingly enough, I have the FSI. I have the sort of the previous version of this uh, in from, I was just using it as like a test sled for lots of different stuff. And the first thing that I did to it to make it better was to put a 120 mil fork on it and to slack it out a little bit. It's still nowhere near as slack as, as the new one here, but it made it a significantly better bike overnight, right? Like just that one change made it massively more fun. So I'm pretty intrigued to see how a hardtail like this with a head tube angle like that, C-tube angle like that. I'm intrigued to see how it works really, because one of the things that, that I'm a little bit concerned about, and I don't know if this will actually play out or not, is when you give me a head tube angle like that, it, it kind of inspires perhaps overconfidence for a bicycle of this um, suspension amount and tires and things like that. I, I feel like the head tube angle may be getting out ahead of what the rest of the bike really wants to do or is capable of. And I don't know. I think there's a sweet spot there. I just wonder if the sweet spot is 66.5, which is pretty damn slack, or more like 67.5 or something like that. Like I said, the FSA, the FSI that I've got now with the 124 fork on it, I think that brings it out to about 68, a little over 68, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think I could go a little bit slacker than that, but I'm not sure about two degrees, one and a half degrees yeah. slacker than that. Because yeah. you have to keep in mind that like, I'm going to run lighter tires on this thing. You know, it's still only, a, a, well, it's still a hard tail. It's got a minimal amount of front travel so like if i get into sort of a bad situation if i go flying into a rock garden because you know the bike is super stable and and wants me to do that i feel like i might just wreck a lot of rear tires on this bike (laughs) i I might smash a lot of rear wheels on this bike might need some restraint yeah but uh yeah i certainly thought like the the specialized epic hardtail and the chisel were quite progressive in their numbers already you know especially if if you compare it to something like a Canada, uh, Canyon Exceed, which I think is about 69 degrees, uh, Giant XTC is also in that sort of 69 degree area. Um, and then, yeah, you've got the, the Specialized, which is like 67, 67 and a half. Um, I, I already thought that Specialized was really progressive, like a World Cup level bike. And then Cannondale's just come out with 
uh, cross country hardtail with a slacker head tube angle than my trail bike. So it's um, yeah. I mean, it, I I'm the exact same as UK. I'm I'm intrigued to ride one and see. But if you know, if your trail bike, it's of benefit. If your trail bike head angle is steeper than sixty six five, you're doing something wrong anyway. So. It's sixty six five. It's exactly sixty six five. That's a you problem, yeah. not a. <laughs> I, 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 my trail bike's I, very modern. Thank you very my, much. My last point, I guess, is the other thing that I did to the the Cannondale FSI that I have now to make it better was to add Kushcore to the rear, specifically like the cross country Kushcore, which is a bit lighter and a little bit easier to install and. It completely changed the way that I ride that bike. I think I mentioned it on this podcast before, maybe the weekly podcast. I can't remember. But that's one of those things that I feel like without Kushcore, without a decent rear tire and Kushcore, where I, where I should say where I ride, which is quite rocky, I don't think that rear wheel or rear tire would would last two rides with a head tube angle like that, making me want to go fast. I, I, I think it's a bit of a mismatch. So you just have to... You just have to... Like I said, stick some Kushkar in, stick a 2.4 Ardent on the back or something like that. Make it fun. Yeah. I'm the same with gravel bikes as far as Kushkars go. It's completely transformed my view of the usefulness of gravel bikes as well. It's the, uh, good The Kushkar gravel tire insert may very well be on my list of 10 favorite products for the year. Which, That's uh, funny. It's that, already on mine. <laughs> oh, and I scheduled we you to go before. We and I scheduled you to go yeah. before me too. It's going to look like uh-huh. I'm copying you. Ah. Yeah. It's on mine as well. We should even get like, we should just ask like Shoddy and everyone else who have never used Kushko just put on theirs as well. Just so we're all consistent. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe not. But speaking of gravel, <laughs> one of the things that things that, that people always ask us about, and we brought it up a bunch too, is whether a cross country hardtail is a better gravel bike than a gravel bike, depending on, of course, it depends on where you are riding your gravel bikes and your local terrain and stuff like that. Um, but the fact that this thing is just 895 grams and then that lefty Ocho fork is quite light as well. And I've, I've ridden those before. They're actually really pretty nice. Um, like they're, they're stiff and they they track really well. They're light, all that stuff. Um, looking at the geometry, I'm kind of curious if I could take a small, I, I would normally fit on a medium Cannondale hardtail for just a regular mountain bike, but I am kind of curious if a small Cannondale Scalpel XC 2.9er with a drop bar and that fork. I actually wonder if that would make for like a super, super sweet gravel bike that would still be fast, still be quite light. 895 grams, that would make it like one or 200 grams lighter than most of the carbon gravel bike frames that are out on the market right now. Um, we, we already know that carbon mountain bike wheels are not any heavier than carbon gravel wheels. If anything, they're often lighter and then if you were to run like a higher volume, uh, higher volume, super, super fast rolling XC mountain bike tire, like what would be the bad side? James, you're, you're describing the new Cannondale Slate, which is still embargoed for 2024. <laughs> mm, I see. Okay. <laughs> How about you just put some bar ends on the uh, hardtail? Purple. Kick it old school. Long as they're purple, <laughs> gotta be purple. Gotta be purple. Yeah, I, like I, I see what I see what you're saying. I see what I like it, but at the same time, I don't like it because I, I, I like, know I like I, know. I like flat bars. I just like flat bars. I think drop bars on dirt are kind of dumb. They're just but he, you just the control is bad. The 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 where I, where I have to grab the brakes is bad. The fact that I have to go down into the drops 
to really grab the brakes, which then puts my weight even further forward and over the front wheel. That's bad. These are, they're all bad things, right? <laughs> Stop, don't send me pictures of John Tomac. I don't care. It's still bad. It was bad when he did it. He's just really good. <laughs> he, correct. That is very correct. For the rest of us who are not John Tomac, it's a bad idea. So I, 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 I guess what I'm saying is if you want to ride it as a gravel bike, change the tires, but leave the flat bar on it. Because I didn't it's say it was necessarily a great idea. I just said I'm really curious <laughs> about what that would mm. be like. Yeah, but your your question does raise a you know it's it's certainly something we've covered before, like the whole hardtail versus gravel bike thing. But I'm currently testing the BMC Urz LT, then your then your bike, which has a front suspension, 20 mil front suspension, and that's that certainly you know that certainly blurs the lines even more between that and a really lightweight hardtail that is you know, very similar in weight within a couple of hundred grams. Um, so it's certainly, uh, yeah, a question that we're not done answering. That's for sure. Uh, I dare say we're not going to have an answer, a definitive answer to this in the very near future or ever, ever. potentially. It's unanswerable because it's too, it's too personal. Let's be honest. It like, is too it personal. Is. We, yeah. we do the, we investigate yeah. because we're interested and we want to be able to help people make that decision without trying the stuff. But realistically, yeah, it's it's way too personal. Yeah. Finally, in the news today, in tech news, we have a super intriguing looking new indoor bike. One of those bikes that goes nowhere uh, from a UK company called Muoverti, which sounds like a distinctly Italian name for a UK company or something. Anyway, uh, according to Muoverti, this new tilt bike is the quote First stationary bike that feels like cycling outdoors, unquote. Uh, it's also supposedly the only bike that gets the physics right, like gravity and inertia. Uh, and it claims to provide an immersive real feel, real life feel with balancing, steering, braking, and accelerating. Hmm. Uh, so in addition to incorporating a built-in electromagnetic smart trainer, uh, so it can automatically adjust resistance based on what's happening on, you know, Zwift or system or you know, Ruby or whatever else your interactive training system of choice is. Uh, there is also a tilt mechanism for side-to-side -side motion and a, uh, kind of a turnable front end for a little more realism and in-game steering uh, for programs that actually have that capability enabled. Anyway, Kaylee, you'll be happy to know there is even a joystick. There's a little joystick uh, that, can be, that can be used with the Xbox game Descenders. Hell yeah. Maybe, maybe for some other oh, stuff cool. in the future. Maybe for some other stuff in the future. Fingers crossed. Can I play FIFA hmm. on it? I do. I don't know. While, while you're pedaling, I don't know. I don't know. It seems like there's a world of potential here. Ooh, I, I have. Um, I have a couple. I have a couple thoughts on this. First, uh, in the press release, at least according to Ronan, it was called the Tilt Bikes with an S, and it appears that every media outlet, ourselves included, removed that S for them because it makes no sense as a plural. Uh, so I, I would like clarification from Muverti whether this is the tilt bike or the tilt bikes. Do we have one tilt or, tw one tilt bikes or many tilt bikes? Or, or is it a verb? Or, what, yeah, what or the way Ronan spelt it, which is T-lit bikes. <laughs> <laughs> he did spell it like that over and over. I, I, th I think I caught most of them. If you caught some more of them, Rome, there was a... In Ronan's defense, he was ill all of, all of last week. Uh, okay, now I feel bad. <laughs> so that, anyway, that was my one thought. I have no idea what the actual spelling is. Uh, we took the S off because the S made no sense. And sometimes we just make these branding decisions for people, like when we don't spell physique how they want us to spell it. We just refuse. There's not mm -hmm. yeah. any extra grammar 
punctuation in physique. Or how they don't spell it. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. how it's supposed to be lower, lowercase f-i, like apostrophe. V-z-i like, colon k colon or something k, like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, you don't get those punctuations. We don't do that. It's, don't it's do a that. good thing for them that Google is smarter than that. Yeah. And, yes, and can understand indeed. what people are wanting. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think it's safe to say that that brand name was conceived before the era of SEO. Yes, so. that is true. So my other thought on this, and, and I'm really intrigued to try it. Like, I'm, oh, maybe not me. Maybe we'll have Ronan try it. Anyway, I want someone <laughs> to try it and tell me. Because, so when you lean in the real world, there's like centrifugal force, or centripetal force, I think it is, that is sort of like pushing you to the outside, kind of holding you onto your bicycle, right? And the whole thing kind of works together and you go around a nice swooping corner with the lean and it's all nice. If I'm stationary and I don't have any of that force holding me onto my bicycle, if I lean over to the side, I'm just going to fall off. <laughs> so I'm not really, I'm not, I'm just really intrigued to see how, like what this feels like. I feel like if they give you more than a pretty minor amount of lean, like a couple degrees, you're just going to, it's just going to feel really weird as you like yeah. basically fall off the side of your bicycle while stationary. Yeah. You'd hope it's pretty strongly sprung as well. Like the idea, like I kind of like the idea that it leans because, you know, you can ride out of the saddle and it should in theory feel more natural and actually use, you know, muscles similar to what you'd use outside. Um, but I, I used to see a bike fitter as a, as a junior, I went to Steve Hogg, the, the famed Steve Hogg bike fitter. And uh, he used to have, this is, this is a long time ago, but he used to have um, his fitting bikes used to have a leaning feature so he could actually see imbalances in your pedaling. And if you were really unbalanced on a bike, the whole bike would actually just tilt offline and then you'd know how to correct your weight balance on it. Um, and I worry that maybe this, if it's not stiffly sprung, that might actually happen to some people that, you know, if, if their weight balance on the bike is wrong and they're, yeah, if they, they sit off on the edge of the sat on one side of the saddle or something that they might end up riding sideways slightly off on an angle <laughs> yeah so we'll see and there's whiffed person just turns right the entire time that would be great <laughs> yes <laughs> yes well this 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 thing supposedly has some elastomers in it to uh kind of keep you like kind of give you some self-centering feature i don't know if they're adjustable um as far as the total angle uh angle of movement i i don't know hopefully it's not plus or minus 90 that would be very awkward um but uh, one thing that a couple things that are actually missing from this thing, however, is you don't have any sort of automated inclination like you have with like the Kicker Climb or Elite's new riser platform, um, which, which seems like a pretty big oversight for something that's claimed to be like super hyper realistic. Um, and then you also don't have that fore aft gliding motion like you have with a lot of aftermarket rocker platforms like that Saris uh, MP1 Infinity. Um so it's in terms of realism, it really is just the steering and the tilting, uh, and I'm not. And I guess the way that they've programmed the algorithm for that electromagnetic brake, and it supposedly has a much faster refresh rate and stuff like that, so it reacts more quickly. But certainly curious. Um, my guess, anyway, uh, Rodin is probably probably going to be the one to test this for us, if only in terms of geography, because turns out turns out he's a lot closer to the UK than we are. Um, he also likes riding indoors. He does. Or more he than, does more like than reading, us. He does. Yeah. Uh, he also has much more conducive weather to riding indoors than we do, I would say. Although, I mean, it, yes, it does get pretty snowy in Colorado, but uh, the sun com comes out an awful lot, and then the roads dry out, and then we still get to ride outside. Um, 
Pricing on this thing is, you know, supposedly in line with competition. So I would imagine things like, um, you know, the, 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 the tax bike and the Wahoo kicker bike, that sort of thing. So my guess is it's probably going to land somewhere around 3,500 US, give or take. Um, so not cheap. Uh, it definitely would be the sort of thing that is going to sit in your dedicated space in your home somewhere or in like your, your, your home gym sort of area. Um, but yeah, super intriguing. Uh, you can see from the pictures, some of the parts are still 3D printed. So this is still not a total production thing, but it looks neat. Uh, it sounds kind of cool. Um, so Ronan will report back, I'm sure, when he's able to ride it. But we are still waiting for the turtle shell function. There's a joystick. I want to see it used. <laughs> it doesn't seem that hard to me. It shouldn't. It doesn't seem like it should be. But Every, you know, everyone's Eric, always like, I want to make we want to make indoor training more realistic. No. If I want realism. I want it to be more fun. If I, I want, want yeah, if fun. I want realistic, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go outside where the outside <laughs> is and Eric, where my actual bicycle goes. That's what I'm gonna do. If I want realism. If I want video games, I'm going to sit in front of a laptop or a, a TV screen. Yes. I, I don't see yes. what's so difficult about this. Give me my green turtle shells. So or give me Eric death. Min. Eric Min from Zwift, we know that you listen to this podcast every now and then. We know that other people from Zwift listen to this podcast from every now and then. We also know that you have already developed this internally. We know that in the Zwift office, you probably are throwing turtle shells all over the place in there. Give us the turtle shells. We are asking for the turtle shells. I wonder if the turtle shell is like protected under some sort of copyright or trademark I'm sure it, by I'm Nintendo. I'm sure it is. It doesn't have to actually be a turtle shell. Well, it could be something could else. Be. What else could it be? Yeah. Like uh... a, a tire. A wheel, water right. bottles. Yeah, that could be a water bottle. Just, no, yeah. like what? What's another little animal we could we could use? Hedgehogs. Mm. No, that might that might. I wonder if Sega maybe an has echidna. A, yeah, I don't know what? what that is. An echidna. It's like a porcupine. Mm. Is that, is that an Aussie Australian. thing? Oh. Yeah, it's spiky. It's a spiky little anteater. All right. No, no one's gonna, no one's gonna know what that is, Dave. You have all sorts. Of, They're gonna get a, of, a puncture from it. You've got all sorts of crazy flora and fauna down there, all of which seem to want to kill you. Uh, so no, I, I these are very cute. These don't. These just eat ants. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It could be. Right, I mean, well, it could be anything. It could be anything. You like, you know, fire disc brake rotors at people. Slice them up. I don't know. Ooh, that's yeah. a good one. Disc brake rotors. Yes. Yes. Push idea. the button, and then you can aim it with the joystick. There's there are so many possibilities. Yep. So many. Mm. Yep. None of which are currently realized. Anyway. We have beaten on that drum over and over again, so we will stop now. No, we will never stop. At, at least, at least for this, at least for this episode, <laughs> okay, we will good. stop for today. We will stop for today. Uh, but that will wrap up the new segment of this episode. We are now going to move on to ask a mechanic, despite the fact that none of us now are still active mechanics. So, Speak sorry, Zach. We are. Yeah. We're, yeah. Yeah, Kelly. Kelly has a rock in his hand. <laughs> ready to fix his bike. Derailers, bearings, disc brakes, and rim brakes, sealants and chain loops. Uh, anyway, all right. As always, our Ask a Mechanic questions come from our Velo Club members through our Slack channel. The first one here comes from Hamish Moffat. Hamish is looking at wheels for an old bike that is currently equipped with nine-speed Shimano Tiagra. Uh, it's probably at least 15 years old, he thinks. He's wondering, do I have to worry about the hub spacing having changed in that time, or is that all much earlier? Uh, 
no, you do not have to worry about it that much. And it really was quite a bit earlier that you that there was big changes. Um, sh Rear Hobbs should just be standard 130 mil quick release, I believe, Dave, yep. right? Yep. Uh, yep, 130. And the only thing you will need to be aware of is that you'll need a spacer behind the cassette. Uh, another thing to think about, there are going to be an awful lot of used wheels on the market um, because especially with the move from rim brake to disc brake, there are God knows how many nice, nice, perfectly compatible quick release rim brake wheels that are out on the market right now. You shouldn't have much of a problem at all finding a killer set of wheels for that bike for not a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yep. So yeah, whether it's uh yeah, and you're you're even luckier because you can find older wheels with a 10 speed hub or newer wheels with an 11 speed hub, and either will work for you. So yep. you've got yep. plenty of options. Uh, next question, staying staying on the wheel front here. This is a question that we've gotten from a listener who has submitted questions before, Mike Gettenby, who I see I confirmed his last name is Gettenby and not getting by. Um, does anyone know of a reliable resource that lets you convert the clearance for a 700C wheel and tire to 650B? For example, if a bike can currently fit 35 millimeter tires on a 700C wheel, what tires would you get on a 650B wheel? Dave, you want to, test, I'm not, you want to take that one? I am absolutely not aware of any resource on this. Um, I, I don't think there's any sort of uh, guaranteed way to know uh, because it'll depend on the frame shape. So some frames around the chain stays, you'll notice that they sort of swoop in in an S shape uh, and that pinch point might be exactly where the the 650B tire might actually sit. So you might end up in some cases even decreasing your allowed tire clearance with a 650B. Well, rare, but it is possible. Um, so I think it's really a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so I was trying to get a hold of uh, Boyd Johnson from Boyd Cycling I uh, was not able to get a hold of him in time for this podcast, unfortunately, partially because I forgot to ask him until not too long before we started recording. But uh, a while ago, Boyd had told me about a uh, a printable file that they had posted on the Boyd Cycling website that I unfortunately could not find. So I don't know if it's still there. Um, but it was a printable file that basically let you uh, you, you print it out at home on your on your home printer, and then you cut cut the template out, and then you essentially held it up in your frame and fork. And it would, you could see physically what might fit in your frame and fork. Uh, I don't know if that template ever included 650B and 700C, that sort of thing. Um, but if that sort of thing is still floating around the web somewhere, that is something that is potentially useful. The other thing to think about is uh, you could just kind of physically measure where the where that 650B tire is going to sit uh, between the stays and the fork blades. Uh, so the roughly from roughly about 32 centimeters from the the axle out to out to the rim, that is where about the the widest point of a 650B tire would sit. So Mike, if you want, you could also get a decent idea by taking a tape measure, measuring out again 32 centimeters from from your hub center line, taking a look at what that clearance looks like between your chain stays, seat stays, and fork blades. Look at that width there. The, the the diameter is not likely to be an issue because it's going to be smaller, but almost certainly than a 700C setup. Um, but look at the width there. Uh, get a good measurement there. And then you want at least bare minimum four millimeters of clearance on either side. So take measure that width at that point, uh, subtract eight-ish millimeters or so, and that'll give you at least a pretty good estimate as to what might fit in your frame. Okay, next question from Mark Huey. 
this one's kind of near and dear to my heart because he's clearly patching tubes at home. Uh, Mark says that he's not not the only one here who has bought Rima patches in bulk. Uh, I foresee staying team tube inside for quite a while, at least for the cargo bike, the beater bike, uh, and the rest of the family's bikes. And since they all have airtight liners top and bottom, the patches that is, um, he says he trusts the patches keep in storage for quite a while. But specifically, how long will they stay good? I hope to never go through all the patches uh, because they are sold in bulk in boxes of 100. That's a lot of patches. Um, I, Mark, I have never seen a Rima patch like go bad in storage. Um, and granted, my box... See, I think the box of patches I have now is, it's probably five years old at this point, I think. And as far as I can tell, they are all still totally pliable and perfectly usable. Uh, like you said, they are sandwiched between a layer of foil and plastic. It's relatively airtight. Um, but I haven't had any issues with them at all. Dave, have you ever seen anything like that? No, uh, not with the patches. Just obviously the glue will will degrade and go bad, but no, not patches. So... Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, when you think about what they're made of, I mean, it's it's no different to storing tubes long-term, right? Which is also not much of an issue if they're properly stored. So yeah, I think it's fine. All right, well, there you have it. Uh, keep on patching away, Mark. Good on you for doing that instead of throwing away those tubes. Uh, next, we have a couple of questions from Jeff Diefenbach, who has submitted some questions before. Um this is a this is a subject that we have we have addressed in various ways uh, in various episodes. Uh, he's got a question about disc brake pad clearance. Uh, why can't disc brakes have more pad and rotor clearance to accommodate slightly different hubs, different rotor thicknesses, and minor rotor warpage? Because that Dave. would be too easy. <laughs> it would be too easy. It would be too easy. Uh, it, I mean, it. This is all about piston ratios and you know hydraulic ratios that sort of thing in order for these things to to work you have to be able to amplify force at the lever at the piston uh, and then because relatively speaking you don't have a whole lot of mechanical advantage because those those rotors are fairly small you have to be able to exert an awful lot of force at that rotor um, and then just given the way all that stuff works you can't have all that much movement at the piston um, so you could have more piston movement um, and we have seen that in things like Magura hydraulic rim brakes and like the, the rotor hydraulic rim brakes that were out there that were made by Magura. Uh, and even like the SRAM, I think the S900, I think that's what they were, the, the, their hydraulic rim brakes, those all had a lot of movement and a lot of clearance. But again, because you had a lot more mechanical advantage because you were grabbing the wheel at the rim, uh, you didn't have to be able to exert as much force. So, um, so Jeff, you could have more clearance there, but you'd also be giving up something as well. Uh, one thing that I would point out is, um, Jeff, if you've ever worked on your car, you might see that, um, I guess in your brakes particularly, you'll see that in your car, there is virtually no clearance whatsoever between the pads and rotor on that. And, and in fact, in most cars, one of the pads is pretty much always rubbing um, because it's a basically a single piston caliper and the caliper itself just slides on these on these pins back and forth. Um, so, but, but that's how you generate enough power. Um, so you just can't quite have that much clearance. You just can't quite have it all when you come, when it comes to disc brakes, unfortunately. Yeah. There's also other issues like you, you'd be asking a lot of the way the pistons, um, retract, which is basically based on seal flex. 
um, you'd be you'd be asking a lot of what's currently a fairly simple system. You'd be asking, yeah, for some pretty big changes, which is probably asking a bit too much of a rubber seal. So um, I think they'd have to the braking systems would have to be far more complex to achieve uh, a great a far greater or noticeable amount of pad clearance. Um, but yeah, it's certainly one of those things easier said than done. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, second question from Jeff. Uh, a friend of his is in the process of building a bike and looking at some component possibilities. Uh, they're looking at Shimano 5800, which is 105 from about 2014 or so, or uh, Dura A7800 from like the 2005-ish era, uh, because those parts seem to be priced at about the same price point, roughly. What do we think about the comparison? Uh, do we think the higher qual- do we think the higher quality materials of the Dura Ace parts? will have a better benefit than the upgraded technology of the newer 105. Uh, his only slightly informed tuition, he says, is that the newer 105 would be better than the 11-year-older Dura-Ace, but he'd love to hear more. <laughs> uh, I I will say that 7800 is one of the finest group sets ever made. Um, like, it's it's a piece of art, really. Like, the function is amazing. It looks great. Uh, it was easy to work on. Uh, I'd, I'd say the only real thing you'd be missing out on with that group compared to a newer group set is the fact that the cables sit out like um, like a clothes hanger. Um, you know, from the from the top of the hoods. I think that's probably the the main. I don't know if you'd call it a disadvantage, but it's it's probably the main difference in my point of view. But uh, yeah, I think in terms of able to achieve like uh, high and low gearing ratios and everything else, I think it's going to be pretty comparable. What do you think, James? Uh, I wouldn't be so much concerned about the age of the stuff, but I'd be concerned more about how much use either of those have had. Mm. Um, Age-wise, if the stuff has just been sitting around, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, those levers, sometimes the grease in them can kind of get gummed up, but that is literally like a 10, 15 second fix to get those up and running again. So I'm not concerned about that at all. Um, but the bigger concern is again, how much, how much use those thing those two group sets have seen 11 years is a long time. Uh, and, and most of the listings that you're going to see for used parts are maybe not as forthcoming as they should be. <laughs> um, my concern would be things like pivot slop in the derailers. Um, it would be, um, yeah, I mean that would be that would be the big one, I guess. Uh, I'd also be concerned about um, cassette and chainring wear. Uh, you can get you can get chains, and that's not a big deal. Um, but you can get new cassettes, but chain chain rings could for sure. be hard for seventy eight hundred. Uh, another thing to consider for seventy eight hundred is, if I remember correctly, that was never offered in anything other than fifty three thirty nine. Mm, yeah, I think um, it was a non series crank. If you wanted less. Um, so that's something to consider as well, depending on where you live and what sort of gearing you want. Uh, as far as the internal versus, uh, as far as the hidden versus the exposed cabling, considering what Shimano did with the 7900 generation after that, I would almost consider in terms of pure functionality that the external cabling is better because it was a smoother cable run. There's a lot less friction in that. Um, yes, it doesn't look as nice. It doesn't look as clean. Um, but man, were they easy to work on and there was such low friction because the, the cable path was so nice and smooth and direct. Um, I agree, Dave, that was why, that's why they considered, 7800 is why they considered one of the prettiest group sets Shimano has ever made. Uh, I still have a complete group set at home that I basically just keep in storage and I'm just going to hold on to until my dying day. 
probably. Um, Going to put your kid through college on that thing. Maybe, maybe. It's all, it's all been totally ultrasonically clean. It's like all pristine and ready to go. Like it's just sitting in the box now. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think to me, I feel like it would be more in terms of wear. Um, uh, well, sort of, I guess the other thing to consider too is the hood shape changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, 7,800 yeah. is very, very small diameter. Um, and the, very hooky, very, very hooky. The, the, that 5,800 generation 105 is a much larger diameter body. Um, if at all possible, it would be really good if your friend could like just sort of lay hands on one or both of those to kind of get an idea because they're very, very different. Otherwise though, I don't know if we have a whole lot of strong feelings about this one, do we? No, not really. I'd say it might, for me, it'd come down to what frame it's going on. If it's going on a, a like a two thousand mid 2000s generation frame, then I think it, it'd be cool to have that bike built up with Jura 7800, you know, like make it, make it period correct. But if it's a newer frame, then, um, then that's not a factor. And at that point you may as well go with the, the groups that that's going to be easier to service. And unfortunately that's probably going to be the 105 at this point, because you can suddenly still get chain rings for that 105. Right. Set. Right. Uh, yeah, for me, it comes down to whether you want uh, a standard or a compact. Like if you if you if you could do a standard seventy eight hundred is sweet. I don't care about the clothes hanger cables. I say go for it. If you need a compact, then it, it, I mean part of the re, part of the for me anyway, this the seventeen hundred the aesthetics of that crank is just so gorgeous that that would be part of the reason to do it. So if you can't do that crank, then I I look elsewhere. All right, there we have it. Last question of the day. This is a pretty good one, actually. This one comes from uh, Mikael Halpin. Hope I haven't butchered that name. Uh, Mikael is debating spending about 500 euros or so on a wheel set with a view of hitting some of the Italian Alps next year. Yes, that should be super fun. Um, and saying either it's going to be new wheels or some maybe, maybe some power meter pedals. Uh, any recommendations uh, for a cheap but light rim brake clincher wheel set uh or should he just stick with the mavic cosmic elites that he found on chain reaction uh and he said if it helps therefore a 2013 tarmac sl4 running 11 speed altegra Mm -hmm. so he um he confirmed that the tire clearance is quite limited on that frame he said about 26 millimeter is about the most on that frame uh so based on that i would be saying that whatever wheel set he picks uh unfortunately in a room with is going to be a big factor in uh, making sure that those wheels can fit on that older frame. So I would say like a 19 millimeter internal room width is probably the maximum that I would go with personally, because anything more is going to make your tire choices a bit limiting. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be a, yeah, a central point of which way he goes. I think the wheels he linked to were like sort of 2013 Mavic wheels, which are probably like a 15 mil wide. It room. is a 15. I confirmed I think that. Yeah, and I think that's that's too narrow. I think the one of the main benefits of upgrading the wheels would be to increase that tire volume. Um, so I think yeah, trying to find a, a happy medium between increasing that tire volume but not increasing it so much that your your tires and rub on your frame would be the the best upgrade and a much more valuable upgrade than just purely focusing on the weight of the wheels. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, another thing that uh, should be considered, I think, is uh, Potentially a custom wheel set, uh, although I'm not sure you'd really want to spend that much money on an, on an older bike like that. It's kind of up to you. Um, 
But something like a even like a DT Swiss R460 rim, uh, it's not bad at all. Uh, it's got a 19 mil inner width. Um, that is something that could still build up pretty light. Uh, and I was thinking in, even into something with like, like just like a Shimano Altegra hub set, for example. It, it's not, uh, again, looking at weight, it wouldn't be incredibly light. It, it just wouldn't be. Um, but looking from a longer term point of view, those hubs would be completely bomb-proof as long as you, as long as they were built by someone who actually knew how to adjust the cup and cone bearings properly. Um, another thing to consider is maybe shopping used uh, as well, because uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, looking at the question that Hamish put forward, uh, if you're looking for a rim brake wheel set for an older bike like that, there are so many options on the used market at this time. You there are there will be all sorts of used options that are be that would be really really good uh, as long as they're in good condition. Um, that that clearance could be a, an issue, um, but I would really consider maybe even something like a if you could find them like a head Ardennes, because um, that wheel set was not terribly expensive when it was new. Um, my guess is that there are probably quite a few of them that were retired fairly early just because of the rim brake disc brake thing. Um, if you were to stick something on there, like maybe like a 24 mil tire printed with, uh, even, even plumped up on that wider rim that would probably still fit on your frame. Although you certainly have to check. Um, I don't think I'd go with a carbon clincher. Uh, he did, did specifically mention riding in the Italian Alps and not a big fan of carbon clinchers for braking purposes. Um, but something like that could be really good. Um, and again, I, I certainly would maybe at least consider consulting a custom wheel builder just to see what's out there, what's possible. Um, because for me, I think doing a lot of climbing in the Alps, I think you could, with, with a new wheel set, I don't know what you have now, uh, but something light could be great. And that, that Mavic Cosmic Elite is not light, as it turns out. Mm-mm. No. And uh, your recommendation of Altegra hubs is is absolutely an old school recommendation, but it's it's spot on. I mean, those hubs are so good value. They they really are very cheap to buy. Uh and what and they're heavy, but I think you can offset that with a, a lighter spoke and and a, a nicer alloy rim, and you'll still end up with a reasonably well weighted wheel, which is would will be bomb proof. Um so I think, yeah, I, I, I quite uh I think I concur with your recommendation to consult a wheel builder and see what can be done. Uh, well, whichever way you decide to go with, I would be curious to hear what you decide on. So please let us know. I know, again, you are a Velo Club member. So go ahead and let us know. Give us an update in the Slack channel so we can see what you, what you ended up with and whether or not you like it. And hopefully we've steered you in the right direction. All right. Well, that is our show for today. Uh, as always, if you liked what you heard today, please let your friends know about Nerd Alert. Uh, please give us a like and a rating on iTunes if you have listened to us there. Uh, definitely subscribe if you haven't done so already, uh, because you may or may not have noticed that there are no ads on Nerd Alert, and that is not because people don't ask to buy ads on Nerd Alert. Uh, apparently, we get asked all the time, uh, I, so I've heard. But we have made the conscious choice to not have ads on here for you because it just kind of makes for a messier listening experience and it's kind of fun to just not have ads and we also just get just get to rip on everything which wouldn't, which wouldn't really change <laughs> if we had ads but it makes it a lot less awkward <laughs> the only uh the only ads i would consider taking would be for like mattresses or something you know like you listen to other podcasts and you like or what's the, the cash app we could just cash app? we could just make uh-huh. up ads for random companies that don't actually buy ads with us 
That'd be I fun. Mean, early on in the the regular Slacking Tips pod, we had all sorts of crazy ads that we did. Like there was one for like bone broth that I remember. <laughs> that was that was a good one. That was very much not cycling related. <laughs> that one didn't go well. <laughs> it didn't go well. And it was, it was it was quite early in our podcast journey here. I don't think we had a whole lot of traffic back then. Uh, I'm pretty sure I recall that company being not entirely happy with their conversion rate, I guess, on that on that ad. I feel like maybe they, they were not targeting particularly well. Yeah, that was one of the things that made us just go like, well, maybe we should just do ads for the bike industry. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> let's actually, let's not do mattress and cash app ads. Well, all, all cyclists need a mattress, that, but not I, all cyclists hey, need bone broth. If, that is true. If you work in the marketing department at Casper Mattresses or whatever one of those internet mattress firms are, is grammar yeah uh yeah you know get in touch we'll do your mattress ad that's <laughs> I, all I we're doing we're only, too, we're only but doing mattresses that's all I, it's the only category that we'll do, do you get do you get koala mattresses in the usa or is that just just an australian no thing? but it sounds lovely yeah it sounds great is it, yeah. are they stuffed full of dead mm. koalas <laughs> no i think every sleep is like a God. hug from a koala i was gonna say i think that's oh, probably man. illegal actually in the united states to stuff a mattress full of dead koalas yeah well, actually, ha- having a hug from a koala is also illegal. They've banned it at Don't all they have, uh, like as of like a decade ago. What's the ago. STD that they all have? Gonorrhea. Yeah. Chlamydia. No, chl- chlamydia. chlamydia. That's right. Chlamydia. That's right. I did read just about yeah. that. That uh, I did read about that just recently. That that it's wiping out the koala population. That's, unfortunately, okay, that's really sad. Joking yeah. aside, that's very sad. But also, there was a poster <laughs> yeah. in my freshman dorm hall that I remember to this day. That was just chlamydia is not a flower. That was the entirety of the poster. What? Oh my god! <laughs> yep, it was wow. just a picture of a flower with like an X through it. It was like chlamydia is not a flower. They need to put these posters on eucalyptus trees all over the country. <laughs> Alert the koalas to it. Oh man! Well, this is the sort of tangent and banter that you get if you if you make it to the end of the Nerd Alert podcast. All right, we are going to wrap things up. Thanks again for listening. We will see you next week. Bye, everybody. You okay? James just fell out of the bunk beds. (laughs) 